and two tonight with the community here in St. Flannan's. We are very privileged to be able to introduce and welcome my friend Paul Ritchie from the Limerick Baptist Church, who has published in very recent times, Is It Unspiritual to be Depressed? Loved by God in the Midst of Pain. There's an old Irish saying, which is Tomajic Shu Leshen Vajin Vira Agus Nadini Nefa, and the Echonakan Krius Gokunak Calvary. Sometimes we like the angels, the saints, and the holy people ascending a hill. And for many of us and many people, that is the experience. Tonight and in these days, we try to offer light at this particular time, but it is the light of our faith and belief. Paul is someone, of course, who is ministering, but also he's a, a great, great friend. And there's many things I can say about Paul, but on a number of occasions, which he has probably forgotten, one particularly, when I sought his help and aid immediately to a family and to a situation, he was able in word, thought and deed to respond. And Paul, that says a lot for me, that you personify what you are going to speak about. So my friends who are here, may I invite us to give a big welcome to Paul Ritchie as he speaks upon, is it unspiritual to be depressed, loved by God in the midst of pain? Thank you. It's lovely to be here. You know, I go down to my parents um, once every third weekend and spend most of the weekends there. And I, I read the back page of the Irish Times to them, you know, the thinking in you. And then Patsy McGarry has a really brilliant thing about words. And they love that. And generally, there's the Church of Ireland notes and the Methodist notes and the Presbyterian notes. And this week, I decided I wouldn't read the Church of Ireland's notes. And then I found from my father-in-law that this talk had been mentioned in those notes. So I could have told them how immensely famous I am uh, to be mentioned in those notes. Um, I brought five copies of the book that I wrote, but you can also get it on Amazon or anywhere like that. Um, I get them a bit cheaper, so those ones are just for five euro if you want. You can just leave the the money there and take one if you want. But I'm talking, well, I'm talking as a pastor, so I'm not talking as a psychiatrist, and I'm not talking as a psychologist. I'm talking about someone who encourages people to have a relationship with Jesus and to see his kindness. Um, and I'm talking as someone who's gone through mental health issues. So um, just a little bit about my background. I would have struggled with anxiety from about the age of 19. I, I was quite, I actually, I was quite religiously anxious in some ways, but I, I, I think that what I was doing was I was projecting my insecurities onto God. And then when I was about 30, my, the nature of my thoughts changed. <clears throat> I started to have much more intrusive thoughts. Um, I was bombarded by intrusive thoughts, thoughts that I didn't like, blasphemous thoughts, disturbing thoughts of a variety of kinds. 
and I would come up with little ticks to, to deal with those thoughts, little gestures that was my way of saying my mind doesn't like these thoughts. And it got to the stage really where I couldn't work very well anymore. I was anxious, I was disturbed, I, I was struggling with people because these thoughts would come into my head, in particular if I was around people. And I, I remember times where we would be having people over to the house and I would be regularly going to the loo just to hide for a while to get my thoughts together. And in the kindness of God, there happened to be a psychiatrist in the church at the time, as well as a couple of GPs. I said to my wife, Caroline, at one stage, I really can't go on with this. And she encouraged me to go to the doctor. And that night, Stephen, the psychiatrist, turned up. And he listened to what I was saying about these disturbing thoughts coming into my head. And he listened to these little gestures and rituals that I had for dealing with those thoughts. And he said, you have OCD, obsessive compulsive disorder. That was a shock to me because, well, if you were to go out there and see my car, you would see that I'm not a tidy person. And the stereotypical image of someone with OCD, uh, sometimes I think unhelpfully portrayed on the TV is of tidy people and I'm not one of those. I think my wife sometimes would like it better if I was a little bit more tidy. Anyway, uh, I took time off. I went for cognitive behavior therapy, which is a talking therapy that was very useful, and I take tablets, and I, I take tablets to this day. And, and life continued on, and then a few years ago, I was watching television with our family, with a young family at the time, and the old insecurities started to come back. And I went upstairs to the, my room and I got into our bed and I started to shake with nerves. And for about a week, I was just debilitated with real anxiety. I went to the, the doctor and got some more tablets, some Xanax to, to help with that. And that seemed to sort of regulate itself. But a few weeks later, one, one day, I was praying in my son's room for some reason, and a darkness came down. And, and that darkness was very dark. And for a period of time, I remember it well because it was the year we won the Grand Slam in rugby. And, and it started, that darkness started the week before Ronan, or not Ronan O'Gara, but Johnny Sexton dropped the goal against France. And it was coming to an end when we beat England and won the Grand Slam. So it was that period of time. But during that time, I couldn't eat. I lost a lot of weight. I was continually depressed. I would wake up early in the morning with no desire to live. I found that I woke up, uh, for some strange reason, my feet sweated a lot. I would wake up in the morning at about five in the morning and I was, I was worst in the morning. And I remember at one stage being afraid to go to sleep because I knew how awful I would feel when I woke up. And it would get gradually better during the day where it was livable by the end of the day, but then you're going back to sleep again. Strangely, I could get to sleep. I just woke up very early feeling really dreadful. Anyway, where's the light? So I'm coming as, as someone who's a pastor, that's my area, and I, I want to suggest that 
that Jesus can bring light into these situations, that spirituality can bring light into these situations. But I'm not speaking simplistically here. Uh, I have to be honest, there were times when I was very depressed where I neither felt God's love, nor did I feel like I loved God. So I'm not coming with a, a simplistic view that says that, you know, if you put your trust in Jesus, your, your mental health will be perfect. It's not that way. It, we live in a broken world. And that's what the Bible says. We live in a world where there's brokenness and there's death and disorder. And all of us are subject to that. And becoming a follower of Jesus hasn't made that disappear. But I do think, and this is where I'm moving away from things I don't really know much about, which is the psychiatry, into areas that's my area of study, which is the theology. I do think that there are elements of spirituality and faith, and particularly Christianity, that can help us as we struggle with issues like mental health. And I'm going to pick up some words um, the first one is grace, love, gratitude, sovereignty, service, and maturity. Those are the words that I'm going to use. And Paul has told me I have about half an hour. So if I go to about five past eight, would be, that be about right? So don't worry, if, if, if I'm still in the first one it, at, at eight o'clock, I've got to skip the, all the other ones because I know I've got to finish in time. One of the things too, though, is before I get into those particular words, when I was very depressed, uh, a fellow struggler in church, a woman called Burr, who's a lovely woman, who struggled terribly with her own mental health, and she gave me a notice or a leaflet from the HSC, and it said that one of the things that can help your mental health is spirituality. I was, I was quite surprised by that, and um, I started thinking, why might that be? I think one of the things that the church offers is community. And I think that when you have a healthy community of integrated people, that can be a great support. And then I was thinking about this again as well, and a, a friend of mine, we were, I was watching her, she was speaking on RTE2 at a kids program, it was for teenagers, someone had sent me the clip. And Brenda, who did her PhD in psychology in Limerick University is now Maynooth teaching there. And she was being interviewed about happiness. And she said to the kids, she said, there are two types of happiness. I don't know how to pronounce the second one. There's hedonistic happiness, which is living for the moment. And she says, that's what most people concentrate on. And then there's a thing called eudaimonic happiness, which I'm, I'm not sure I'm pronouncing that right, which is living for a bigger picture. And she said, if you want true happiness in life. You need not just to be focusing on the immediate, the now, the hedonistic happiness, what you're doing this weekend. You need to be thinking about the eudaimonic happiness. You need to have a purpose in life. You need to be thinking about something bigger. And the interesting thing is, as Brenda was saying this, she actually shot her eyes up to heaven. So when I spoke to her after that, I said, that was a, a very subtle bit of faith sharing, because I could see you looking up to God. And she said, well, actually, I did speak about my relationship with God as the source of my eudaimonic happiness. 
The only problem is that when the editor came to it, they cut that bit out of the interview. But that's another way where I think spirituality helps us in our well-being, gives us something bigger to live for, not just this weekend, but to be a part of God's big purpose in his world. But what I'm going to say with these words is that Christianity, the gospel that Jesus speaks, goes one step further. And it goes one step further because there are particular things, not unique to Christianity, but some of them unique to Christianity that I think are helpful for our emotional well-being. And one of them is grace. Grace is God's unmerited, undeserved, unearned favor. I normally describe grace like this. If you come, if Paul comes and washes my windows and I give him a tenor, that's a wage. He earned it. If Paul comes and breaks my windows and I give him a tenor, that is grace. He doesn't deserve that. Now, my daughter, who's uh, now in UCD, she said to me, I've got a better one. You've got to stop using that illustration. She said, it talk about the dog. So we have this dog called Kerry after our favorite county. And um, Kerry's a young dog. She's a little bit difficult. And she went to our friends in Adair and she killed their rabbits. That was a little bit of an awkward conversation when they told us. But that Sunday, my friend Catherine came to church with a present for Kerry. That's grace. It's summed up in the Psalms, Psalm 103, verse 10, where it says, God does not treat us as our sins deserve, but according to his loving kindness. That's grace. And I think that grace is a uniquely beneficial foolish concept. A friend of mine was going for counseling. I'll call him John, but his name is not John. And John said to me, one of the problems I have when I go to my counselor is that I want to tell her of all the things that I do that I'm ashamed of. And she's spending all her time trying to tell me that I'm actually good. He says, but I want someone to be able to help me deal with the bad. Well, well God helps us deal with the bad. I had someone recently tell me that they're an awful person. I said, so am I. I said, actually, the good news is you're worse than you realize, and so am I. But God is gracious. So grace, then love. You see, grace is rooted in love. You might remember what the most famous verse in the Bible, it used to be anyway, John 3, verse 16, for God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whoever would believe in him would not perish but have eternal life. It's grace, but it's rooted in love. There's another verse that's easy to remember because John, who wrote those words, wrote a letter. He wrote three letters. And the first of them, 1 John chapter 3, verse 16, says, This is how you know what love is. Christ died for us. So if you want to know what the Christian definition of love is, you look to the cross. You see Jesus dying for us, taking the punishment we owe. And I, I explained this to a friend of mine who's dying of cancer, and, and he's, he's exploring Christianity. And he says, but what about the justice? You, you know, I don't want to just be let off for all the things that I've done. I said, but the justice has been served. The punishment has been taken. 
The one in Romans, uh, one of the book of the Bible, says God is just and the one who justifies the wicked. In other words, I can now look at the worst things in me and I don't need to be afraid because the cross has taken them. Justice is being served and that's what he offers to all of us. And then there's gratitude. I'm keeping an eye on the time. I think we're doing okay. And there's gratitude. You see, my friend Brenda, who I mentioned in Maynooth, um, I met her the first time I met her in the Christian Society in University of Limerick where I was asked to speak. And we were talking and I, I said to her, what are you doing? You know, what do you study? She said, I'm doing a PhD in the mental benefits or the mental health benefits of gratitude, of thanksgiving. And you have grace, motivated by God's love, and that's supposed to change your life. You're not changed in the Christian gospel in order to get into the club. You're not buying God's acceptance, but as someone who goes with an empty hand and receives his forgiveness, it's supposed to change the way we live. It motivates true gratitude. I talked to someone recently and um, he was talking about the fact that he, he struggles. He's interested in Jesus, but he struggles to love Jesus. I said, well, maybe part of the problem is that you've never been presented with a picture of Jesus you can love. Maybe you've always thought God was out to get you and you haven't seen the love and the grace and the kindness of God. And so a God who he thought was out to get him says, you must love me, but how can he love that person if he doesn't think they love him? But one of the things with grace and love is that it's supposed to motivate gratitude. And so, yes, you're supposed to change as someone who follows Jesus, but not to get his acceptance, but from the position of acceptance. You know, um, a, a relative of mine had to spend quite a while in a psychiatric institute, uh, a hospital. And I, I talked to them when they came out. She had turned 80. She had always had good mental health until that time. And, and I said, what went wrong? And she said, I used to spend my time as a, a person turning 80, looking back on my life with regret, thinking about the things that I could have done different. And I said, now that you're better, what's your thought process now? And she says, now I get into bed at night and I go through lists of things to be thankful for. We've got to be careful about the conversations that we have in our head. And I'm conscious, you know, I'm speaking about Jesus and Christianity and stuff here, but I also want to, to, to give you stuff here that will be helpful to you even if you're not religious. And, and the positive effects of speaking gratitude into your life is something for all of us. Another thing, too, that is, 
relevant to all of us, whether we're spiritually interested or not, is service. Uh, the NHS, the National Health Service, on their website, they have an area where they have ideas for good mental health, and one of them is volunteering. And actually, this is a biblical principle. So in the book of Hosea, way back in the Old Testament, hundreds of years before Jesus comes, uh, Isaiah says, Hosea 50 verse 10, and if you spend yourself on behalf of the hungry and satisfy the needs of the afflicted, the light will shine in the darkness, and your night is the midday sun. Now, I've got to be careful here. Again, I'm moving into areas that are a little bit beyond my field. But I remember one time when I first struggled with chronic anxiety. I remember I was studying in Dublin and I went into this city center. And I remember looking at a homeless person and my heart went out to him in a way that it had never gone out to someone in that situation before. And I remember saying that when I get better, I'll try to do something for people like that. And that's a good thing. But in the very darkness, you may find yourself in places where you're just unable. You're just too crippled with anxiety and depression to be able to, to carry those out. But when the time comes, there's a mental health benefit in serving others. And, and that's not a uniquely Christian concept, but it's certainly a concept you see in the life and the person of Jesus. And then this is the, probably the most theological words that I'm going to use this evening, and that is the word sovereignty. Sovereignty means that God is in control. And to know that your life is not just, you, you remember that poem Invictus where it says, I am the captain of my fate, I am the ruler of my soul. There's only some comfort in that. I would rather know that I'm in the hands of a loving God. But you've got to be very careful when you talk about sovereignty, because obviously it raises all sorts of questions. How can a loving God allow this? How can a loving God allow that? And there aren't always easy answers to those questions. And one of the things that can happen in the sort of circles that I've moved a lot in is that people will fire a Bible verse at you. Paul, the apostle, writes to the Romans and he says, all things work together for the good of those who love him. But take that verse and just simply fire it at someone and it's not always helpful. A friend of mine years ago had a nervous breakdown and she found it so hard that people would just fire Bible verses at her. And I realized only recently that, that the problem was not what the Bible was saying. The problem was that when you give anybody, you know, quick or slick answers, you're not taking the time to listen to where they're at. And actually what was hurting her was that she wasn't being listened to. 
Someone was giving her a quick answer with a Bible verse and telling her, now it's okay. But this concept of sovereignty actually helped me when I was at my lowest. You might remember the hymn, Amazing Grace. It was written by a slave trader by the name of John Newton. John Newton had an awful past. And he was a, an atheist of sorts. And they used to talk about the third passage so that ships would go down to Africa, collect the slaves, go to the West Indies, and they would pick up things like sugar and bring them across to Britain. And it was on that third passage in the middle of a storm where he thought he was going to die. He remembered his mother's faith and he cried out, have mercy. And the God that he had thought that no longer existed, he was shocked to find something within him calling out. It changed his life. He became a marvelously compassionate pastor. He was a Church of England rector. He was friends with a, a guy called William Cowper, the poet, who had terrible mental health issues. And I'm, I'm convinced that John Newton was able to get alongside him at times of Cooper's worst depressions. I, I'm convinced that he saved his life in many ways. But this is what Newton said, and it's a summation of that verse that I mentioned. John Newton said, everything is needful that God sends, and nothing can be needful that he withholds. I wasn't sure that that sort of truth would help me in my lowest point, but it did. To realize that somehow there must be a purpose to this. Somehow God mustn't have fallen off his throne. Somehow. And, and you know, that leaves us with difficult questions. How can a loving God allow this happen to me? But you know what? I would rather live with those unanswered questions and know that God is in control, particularly when that God invites each one of us to call him Father. And then the last word, I think I'm going to get there in time, Paul. The last word is maturity. So when I researched for that book, I, I read a lot of popular books on spirituality and depression and anxiety and mental health. One of the things when you write off to a, a publishing house is sometimes you've got to review the other books in the market and tell them why your book is different. Well, it's as well I can't remember the name of this book because what I want to say about this book that I read is that it's like my book, but it's better. So I kind of wanted to write down and go, I think his name is Chris Capone or something like that. I wanted to go, Chris Capone's book is like my book, but it's a much better book. But one of the th concepts he had that I found very helpful was he said this, and I'll read it out. Pursuing maturity rather than simply happiness has changed the way I live my life. It allows me to feel joy in the midst of my sorrows. You see, what he, what he did was he realized, and, and this is true for all of us, 
but it's particularly true if you're a follower of Jesus, is that God's role in our lives is not simply happiness. It's maturity. One of the things that comes at maturity can be compassion. The Apostle Paul talks about this. He talks about the God of all comfort who comforts us in our weaknesses so that we could comfort others with the comfort we've received. Sometimes there's a quality when you realize that someone has experienced brokenness. It brings a depth, a maturity to them. And and sometimes that's redeeming. Sometimes you come through the darkness into a place of greater light and you come through as a better person, a more compassionate person. Or for the Christian, someone who reflects Jesus better to others. I read this um, thing by a guy called Andrew Sims. He was president at one stage of the Royal College of Psychiatrists, and he said this. He said, the mental health benefits of spirituality are vastly, I'm misquoting him here. I think he said something like, one of the best kept secrets in medicine in general and psychiatry in particular. Tonight I come before you and I hope that I'm, I'm not shoving my faith down your throat. But I want to say that it's not simplistic, that, that my relationship with Jesus hasn't just simply meant that I've got over all my mental health struggles or that I will never struggle with depression again. That's not what I'm saying. But I think that the, the God that we read of in the Gospels shown to us in the person of Jesus Christ, immensely compassionate, who offers forgiveness for the very depth of what's wrong in our hearts, can bring light into our suffering. If he's betrayed as he really is. I say that last word because a friend of mine, Elaine, I'm using her, in the book she's called June, because, you know, you, you've got to sometimes change names. But um, I, I wrote to Elaine and said, Elaine, can I use your name? And, and she never got back to me, so I'm sure she wouldn't have had a problem, but, but I just thought better use June. I don't know why I used the name June. It would be much better if I had said Sandra or Sarah, because it's a more popular name, because we have a June in our church. And sometimes I'll say, do you know June? They go, yeah, I read about her in your book. And I go, that's a different person. But Elaine, she grew up in a a Christian home. But what she was presented with was sometimes more rules than relationship. And I think that's what partly led to her breakdown. And then she recovered, and I I emailed her, and I said, how's it going, and and how's how's, how's these things? And she said she she, she made immense recovery, when she realized that Christianity was more about relationship than rules, and that she found her church self in a church where there was a warm sense of community, and where she started to read the Gospels and see who this person Jesus was, and he helped bring some light into our situation. Thank you.
ladies and gentlemen, and those who share this with us through the medium of, of webcam. It's so important to hear Paul's message this evening because so often, and this is the point of the series of, of talks, what is, unexp is unexpressible or unmentionable and when vocabulary in any language fails and when institutionalism and rubric doesn't reach to where someone is at in their brokenness and vulnerability. And yet Paul highlights very much spirituality and relationship with each other. Welcome. Being in a safe place. A living, unconditional, loving God that welcomes all. So tonight, for anyone who is in a dark place, who feels overwhelmed or under pressure or alone, you are not alone. We are here for you. The words that you've heard through Paul might be of help. Please make contact. Tonight, very much for those who are here present, May I introduce Dr. Marjorie Stokes, who is here with us. Marjorie is a consultant psychiatrist, though Marjorie, I know, says retired and, and, and whatever, but she is so active and good. She's here if anyone would like to talk to her, would like to find a little bit of support. I hear too in my own training, I'm here to, to also listen. And Paul, I thought it was wonderful where you commented on that, her words are not necessary, just simply listening, listening, silence, listening. Would anyone like to ask Paul a question? Is there something that's on your mind that you would like to ask Paul? I suppose for me tonight, for anyone feeling very low, vulnerable, who is in a bad place tonight, if you were to say a sentence or two to them, what would it be? I think uh, another word that I might have used was the word hope. And um, I think one of the things that when I was very depressed that I lost sight of was hope. And I remember um, talking to someone, uh, I think they were medical, maybe psychiatry in background, but they said, these things pass. You, you don't stay at the very lowest moment. And so if you find yourself in the very lowest moment, you gotta reach out. You gotta not lose contact with people. Don't isolate yourself. And, and if you're going through a period of that darkness, it won't stay that way forever. There will be better times. And, and so you don't lose a sense of that hope. I'm not being naive. I know that there'll be times where, where depression may come back and so on. But the very darkest, unlivable moments, they, they pass. And so talk to someone, talk to your doctor, talk to a friend, 
but reach out, don't isolate yourself in the darkness. Yeah, Dr. Stokes has just said for those on the, the camera, if you, they couldn't hear, about the, <coughs> the, the sort of the daily pattern. You know, it's worse in the morning and holding on and going through routines until it gets, and I certainly, I wouldn't have said I enjoyed the evenings, but certainly I could survive the evenings. And, and I think knowing that that pattern existed became very helpful because I would wake up utterly, utterly dark, but I would know that, you know, I'm hanging on in this day and maybe, you know, it, it will, that that was the worst, you know. I don't know if this is good advice too, but I, I tried to force myself when I was depressed to do some things that that had some routine that would be, say, formally enjoyable. I would sometimes go, I went once a week for lunch with my wife, for example, just trying to keep some of those routines. I can't say I enjoyed them, but they were, they, they just, they kept the rhythm going. In fact, during that rugby season, I, I went, it was the only season that I couldn't really care less how Ireland were doing, but I sat beside my son for those matches because I, I, I wanted to be with him. Um, but actually that helps, not, you know. Don't forget everybody, Paul's book is available here. Is it unspiritual to be depressed, loved by God in the midst of pain? And on behalf of all of us, Paul, tonight, thank you. Thank you for being with us. And Dr. Marjorie, we appreciate your presence as well. If anyone would like to say a word to Marjorie, feel most welcome as well. And indeed to Paul. Thank you, Paul. Paul, I suppose, as is customary for us on this, the second week of Advent, uh, would you say a prayer for us all? We would ap ap appreciate it. Thank you. So in the letter of Paul to the Corinthians, his second letter, he talks in chapter one of despairing of life itself. And he says this, he says, we received comfort from the God of all comfort, who comforts us in our distress so that we too can comfort others with the help that we have received. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that you're a comforting God. We thank you that you're a loving God. We thank you that you offer each and every one forgiveness and purpose and relationship with you. And I pray for those of us here and those on the camera, whether they're looking for you or not, that they would see your good and that you might show them your kindness and that you might show them your offer of grace. Amen.